open the word together to the book of Joshua. I almost want to say, find the gospel according to Joshua, because that's what we're going to do. That's what we've been doing. The book of Joshua, chapter 3, and we're at verse 12. This morning, we're looking again at the account of the Israelites' entrance into the land that the Lord had given them through the Abrahamic promise, the land of Canaan. We've already learned how the Lord has displayed His magnificent grace to that pagan woman named Rahab, how He spared her life, how He brought her to a place of repentance and faith and gave her new life, and how she hid the spies and sought a place among the people of God and became, though a pagan, became a member by grace through faith of the covenant nation. And then she, by faith, made arrangements for the salvation of her family. She, too, was concerned about them. And she would bring them into their house. And there they would await the arrival of the people of God who were coming not on a visit, but were coming to bring down the walls of Jericho and to claim the city and the land in the name of the Lord. And then last Lord's Day, we saw how Joshua prepared the people to actually cross over the Jordan River and to enter into the land of promise. And the priests were carrying the the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that sacred box, that portable throne of God that contained the Decalogue and the pot of manna and Aaron's rod. And they were going to carry the Ark into the middle of the raging Jordan River. How the Lord commanded them to do that, a most irrational command, an unusual command. And yet, there they are, following the Ark wherever it goes. But what was the Lord going to do? How would they cross over safely? Would they all die? Would they drown? How could they enter the promised land through that raging water? Wasn't there another way into the promised land? It certainly looked impossible. But they were about to learn that the God of the Exodus was their God too. And here, years after being evacuated from Egypt, miraculously by the hand of God, they were going to learn again that the Lord who has saved them in the past is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He will do it again. And so let's read this, Joshua 3, verses 12 and 13. Joshua said, Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, From each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. The word of the Lord. May his name be praised. Well, the first thing we see going on here is an unusual command for Joshua to find 12 men. Verse 12, he orders the people to identify 12 men, one representing each tribe, and they are, in essence, put on hold awaiting their performance of a very sacred and important task that we'll read about later in chapter 4. 
Now, what these men do, what they will eventually do, is recorded there in chapter 4. Maybe until we get there next week, we'll just take a peek into chapter 4 and just read what they're going to do. So you might look at chapter 4, verse 2. We're going to come back to this next Lord's Day, but let's just see what Joshua has in mind. Chapter 4, verse 2. Take 12 men from the people, from each tribe of man, and command them, saying, Take 12 stones... From here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, one man from each tribe. Another odd command. First, walk out into the water. Second, find twelve men, take these twelve stones and carry them over and put them where you're going to lodge when you get across. A strange command. What does it mean? Well, we'll do that next Lord's Day. But then the Lord turns from this command to identify those 12 men who are going to pick up those 12 stones. And the Lord begins to explain what is about to happen immediately to the people of Israel. The Lord announces to Joshua that he is about to do the impossible again. And notice the way the Lord speaks of himself. He speaks to Joshua, who then speaks to the people, and he speaks to them at the edge of the river. And here the Lord identifies himself as the Lord of all the earth. The Lord of all the earth has brought them to the edge of the water, The water is rushing mightily, the snow has melted, the spring rains have come, the water has tripled or quadrupled in width and in depth, and the Lord of all the earth is about to display his sovereignty over all creation. So before they cross over, the Lord of all the earth is establishing his rightful claim to the land they are about to enter. He is going to prove to them what the psalmist said, that the earth is the Lord and all its fullness. This is a big thing about to happen. He is the creator. He is the sovereign one. He does as he pleases. He is the Lord of all creation. He has all power over all nature, and all the forces of nature are under his command. They can be employed at his will, for his service, for his purposes, and the Lord is about to do that again. He makes the winds his messengers, says the psalmist. He sends the rain and the hail. He causes the mountains to drip with dew and the snows to blanket the ground in the wintertime. The psalmist says, He, the Lord, gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. The psalmist says, Fire and hail and snow and mist and stormy wind, they all fulfill His word. And then the interesting 29th psalm. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of the Lord thunders. The Lord's voice over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. And then listen to this. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is king forever. And this was the lesson they were about to learn. The Lord is king forever. 
Then Joshua says, here's what's going to happen. At the very instant, the soles of the feet of the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the very instant their toes, the very instant their feet rests in the waters of the Jordan, verse 13, the water will be cut off from flowing, and the waters flowing down to the Dead Sea will stand up in one heap. It's as if the very feet of Yahweh's priests have the power to divide the Jordan. Their toes, as it were, by God's appointment, are endued with power. So much for the idol gods of Egypt and Canaan. Here is a miracle. A miracle is going to happen. One wrought by the powerful presence and purpose of the Lord. And you remember, remember the list of nations in verse 10, those ites in verse 10? All of those nations, all seven of the Canaanite nations there will witness this. The Lord and his priests. There's a showdown at the river. How will the people of God cross? What will they do? That river is a formidable obstacle protecting those seven nations. And yet Yahweh brings his people there. And he says, my priests and their big toes. That's all it's going to take to bring down every kingdom that's on the other side of that water. And you'll notice the word heap in verse 13. Look at that word heap. It's important because that's the same word used in the description of how the Lord saved Israel at the Red Sea. You might remember Exodus 14:22. We read how the Lord saved Israel at the Red Sea. You remember we we talked about this several months ago. And there the scripture says, the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. And the waters became a wall on their right and on their left. And then in Exodus 15, Moses composes a hymn of praise to the Lord after the event. And the the, the hymn Moses wrote says this, at the blast of your nostrils, Lord, the waters piled up and the floods stood up in a heap. And the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And then Asaph, the psalmist, wrote these words in the 78th Psalm. Looking back to that day of deliverance, the Lord divided the sea. He let them pass through it. And he made the water stand up like a heap. And here's that word again, heap. For a second time before their eyes... And before all the eyes of Israel's enemies, the Lord will do a miracle. The impossible is going to happen. Well, then it does happen. And so we pick it up in verse 14. Let's read now verses 14 through 16. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people... And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, and the Jordan was overflowing all its banks during the time of the harvest, verse 16, 
The waters coming down from above did, in fact, stand up, and they rose up in a heap from very far away at Adam, the city beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now, that's unmistakably clear language. Sure enough. When the toes of the priests dipped in that flowing water, the water stopped. It's as if you had a valve or a knob, and you just, you just turn the knob, and the waters of the Jordan stopped, and they were, they were cut off completely. And I want you to make note of how explicitly the details, the, the, the size of this miracle are, are spelled out. Notice in verse 16, upriver at a little town called Adam, the waters of the Jordan flowing south toward the Dead Sea stood up in a heap. Now what you don't realize is that the city of Adam was 19 miles from where they crossed. 19 miles upriver. In this little place called Adam, the waters stood up in a heap. Had, had you been there watching this, you would have been blown away. There would have been just a wall of water appearing. A miracle. Something happened that the forces of nature and the forces of man could never explain. The, the water stood up like a wall. There is no force of nature to cause that. It's almost silly to listen to people try to figure out how God did it. It wasn't an earthquake. It, it wasn't some strange earthly phenomena. It wasn't a, an unusual wind. Can you, can you imagine that? It was the hand of God. It was a miracle. It was simply a miracle. The wall stands up. The waters of the Jordan were piled up over the entire distance from Adam to the point where the crossing took place, 19 miles. And then note the southern dimensions of the miracle. Look into the south toward the Salt Sea, which is the word or the name Dead Sea. This is the Dead Sea. The waters there were completely cut off. And so nature bows in submission to the sovereign king of creation and the father of the covenant people. This is a miracle. And all we can do is join the prophet Isaiah and say, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you are enthroned above. You are God. You alone are over the kingdoms of all the earth. You have made heaven and earth. You, O God, can do as you please. And he did a miracle again so that his people could make their entrance into the promised land. Now look at verse 17. <coughs> Here is how it ends. Here's the beautiful aftermath, the results of God's sovereign power at work in a most unusual way. Verse 17. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And Israel was passing over on dry ground 
until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. You, you see something there twice. Dry ground. And now the, the, the dimensions of the miracle are amplified even further. Not only was there a wall of water... <laughs> And the, the entire river stopped up for 19 miles, but the, the bed of the river was dry. And it's said emphatically, it was dry. The idea is to, to, to wow us, to, to drive us to our knees and to go, my Lord and my God, <laughs> a miracle. There, there was no leftover moisture in the, in the bottom of that river. Can you imagine that? If, if the, the Tennessee River were to stop flowing tomorrow and, and, and there was no water left in that channel, how long would it take for it to dry out? But immediately, there's dust. <laughs> there's dry ground. And with the repetition of that little detail, we're taken back to the Red Sea, aren't we? Because that is exactly the way the Red Sea crossing was described. Just listen, listen. The Lord tells Moses, Exodus 14, 16, Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Exodus 14, 22, And the people of Israel did go into the midst of the sea on dry ground ground. Exodus 14, 29, the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. Exodus 15, 19, when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground. Do you see that? God has done it again. He did it again. It's at this point that we either have to believe the Word of God or not. If this did not happen, if this Jordan River crossing did not happen in the way specified, we can have no confidence in any part of the Word of God. It either happened this way or it didn't. And if the Bible lies... If it deceives us here, then, then not one verse can be trusted. And if what we have here is a false or defective testimony concerning what happened and how it happened, then, then we have no sure word from the Lord at all. And all the skeptics and the disbelievers are correct that our faith is simply an illusion. It is a sham. Now maybe you're saying, Mike, you're way overreacting to this. But let me show you how important the details are. Remember chapter 4. We're going to get there next Lord's Day, but remember, remember those 12 stones. And let's hear verse 21, chapter 4. They're already across. And Joshua says to the people of Israel about those stones. When your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Verse 22, then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. 
For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up until we passed over, so that all people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord God forever. Now, you tell me how important miracles are. You know how important. The entire faith of Israel The entire religion of Israel hinges upon the reality of this miracle. The faith they are to pass on to their children and to their children and to their children and to us depends upon, stands upon, rests upon the fact that God is sovereign and he is Lord and miracles are no problem for him. Either they happened or they didn't. And everything rides on that. Here was a tangible, experiential, historic proof for them that the Lord was real, that he had saved them, that he was really their God, that he could be trusted, he should be worshipped, he should be loved, he should be served, he should be obeyed. Israel's faith and our faith is a miraculous faith. It is a miraculous faith. But there's more. There's even more than that. There's something else about that dry land, not only the the miracle aspect of it, clearly a miracle, but what it means. As the people of the nation crossed to the other side, the priests are carrying the ark of the Lord, and the priests stop with the ark, According to verse 17, in the midst of the Jordan. There's another translation of the Old Testament that we don't read too often. But it reads this way. Verse 17, the priests who bore the ark of the Lord's covenant stood on dry land exactly in the middle of the Jordan. Now now why that detail? The priests bearing the ark stood exactly in the middle of the Jordan on dry land while Israel crossed over on dry land until they'd all finished crossing. Now, what is all that about? Surely a miracle, but there's something more. And here here is what's more. Here is what is glorious. The one who is called I Am and his priests remain, as it were, in the place of danger while the people cross over safely. The rapidly flowing waters, now halted, a wall holding them back, a wall of water holding them back, but the power of that river still raging. That is being held back As the people cross in perfect safety and the Lord puts himself and his priest, as it were, in the place of danger while they cross over in safety. Do you see that picture? It is very apparent that the waters represent the judgment of God. 
We only have to remember the flood of Noah. You remember that flood? The, the world and its evil and all its evil people were judged by God in water. We go back to creation. Creation was first a place where there was water and the, the land and the water were not divided, a place of, of chaos, as it were. And then the Lord puts it together. He, he brings cosmos out of chaos and then sin spoils it. And in Noah's flood, it's as if the Lord released those, those primordial waters once again to have their way to cleanse the earth. And he saves only Noah and Noah's family and the animals that he brought aboard that ark. But those waters clearly represent the judgment of God. And then there's, there's the Exodus. The Lord takes his people out of Egypt and he takes them to the Red Sea. And the waters part. And they walk over on dry land, and then Pharaoh's army with all his chariots and all his well-trained military men come into the heart of the sea, and the Lord judges them with water. And now again, the Lord sends his people into the waters of judgment, but those very waters have been pushed back and held at bay while God himself stands in the middle, protecting his people, letting them cross over on dry ground. And he does so because he loves his people. The Lord, represented by the ark, watches his people cross over on dry land, and he is lavishly loving the people whom he has loved lavishly in eternity. They cross in mercy. They cross in love. There is judgment and there is mercy. Judgment coming on all the unbelieving nations. Mercy for God's people. God loved them and they loved him. And they cross in safety, not the least danger of sinking down not the least danger of falling in the mud and being swept up with the torrent that will surely return. No, they cross on dry land. All is well. Yahweh saves his people. Now that's what happened. But there are some connections we should make between that great miracle in the past and all of us here today. And throughout the length of this series of sermons, we've been trying to make these connections. We're trying to show the, the one plan of salvation, the one people of God. And salvation is progressing from Genesis all the way to the Revelation, telling one incredible story. So this miracle, this second crossing, has a lot to say to us this morning that is so important, so exciting, so relevant, so life-changing. And I only have time to, to talk about a couple of ways that we can see the connections between this miracle event and you and me here today and the church of Jesus Christ. There are some obvious connections concerning our salvation. In other words, we can look at this miracle crossing of the Red Sea and we can see the way Jesus has saved us. Let me show you what I mean. 
In the first place, the Christian faith is also a miraculous faith. You see, we would say that the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua was our faith too. And like their faith, our faith, our gospel, like their gospel, is a gospel of miracles. Let me give you a few. The miracle of the incarnation of our Savior. We see that here in this episode. We believe that God became a man in the person of Christ. But look at how that miracle is foreshadowed by the ark, that box made of acacia wood, where the Lord's presence dwelt, that box that represented God with his people. He could be touched by the priests. In many ways, he could be seen and experienced there. Here we have the perfect deity and the perfect humanity of the Lord symbolized in that ark. And that's a non-negotiable miracle for Christianity that God became a man. You see, we have, we have a divine Savior, a divine Savior. He was and is God, and he took on human flesh. And so he's not just a man. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the Word made flesh. He is the one who became one of us and dwelt among us, as John claimed. And that's a miracle. That's a miracle. Can't be explained. Incomprehensible. God becoming man. But that's the gospel. That's the miracle. We can never be satisfied just looking at Jesus and and seeing only his humanity and seeing only the the things that he did and said as as incredibly important as those are. It's it's who he was, the God-man. The miracle of the incarnation foreshadowed in that ark. A miracle. But then there's the miracle of the cross and the bodily resurrection of our Savior. In the cross, God puts himself in the place of danger for us. Can you make that connection? Every one of us who've been saved have been saved by God from God. His wrath. Think of it this way. It's as if at the cross of Jesus, the waters of divine judgment that should have fallen upon us and consumed us for all eternity were held back by God's incomprehensible mercy. Can you you see the cross and see the outstretched arms of Christ Who is the God-man dying but holding back the wrath of God that was meant for us and embracing it in its totality for us? We cross over on the dry land of God's mercy and Jesus drowns for us. Do you see the connection? 
What is the cross? Where the Son of God drowned in the wrath of God. The wall at the city of Adam, the wall of water, was released at the cross. And the full measure of God's wrath, Jesus consumed. He was overwhelmed with God's wrath. The first creed of the church outside of Scripture, the Apostles' Creed, attempts to get at the magnitude of what Jesus did by saying, He descended into hell. The hell of God's wrath released against Jesus on the cross. And we walk over safely. The watery walls of water fell upon Jesus, and he died. The miracle of the cross, Jesus in our place, the miracle of his death, the Son of God dying. How does God die? But he died truly. He died really. He was buried like all the dead are. How? I don't know. I just know it is. He died. A miracle. Oh, that was Friday. And then something happened on Sunday. <laughs> I'm so happy somebody amen that. Now, we're going to celebrate that in a few weeks. But the miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of the cross, the miracle of the Son of God taking his Father's wrath, the miracle of his death, and now, now the miracle of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Death and the grave defeated. The miracle of Easter morning, the miracle of all miracles. For if that miracle didn't occur, it doesn't matter what happened before then. That miracle changed everything. And from those waters of divine judgment, there arose a new nation, a holy people of God's own choosing, emerging from the waters of judgment, from sin and destruction, from all the ashes of human depravity. God is raising a new people, a new Israel, true Israel. We not only died with Christ, that means our sins and everything we were in Adam, but we were raised with Christ on Sunday morning in newness of life. We died with Him, we were raised with Him, and we have nothing to fear. That's a miracle. Could it be that the dry land on the river bottom of the Jordan River represents the fact that there is no condemnation or possibility of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? There is no threat of destruction. There is no worry. There is only rest and an eternal inheritance on the other side where there are pleasures forevermore. A miracle. A miracle. And then there's the miracle that we're waiting on. Because God is not through with his miracles. The miracle of the new heaven and the new earth. 
One day, the, the chaos of our world, not only the people and their hearts, but the chaos of nature itself. One day, all of spoiled creation will give way to the cosmos of the new creation. He will return and make all things new. He will raise our dead bodies from their tombs. Raised in resurrection life, never to die again, and creation remade, the universe remade. All things are new indeed, a miracle. Now, that's the kind of faith we have, a miracle faith. And those are the miracles related to salvation that are clearly foreshadowed in this amazing story of crossing the Jordan. But there's something else there for us. Not only the connections to salvation and those miracles required to bring us to new life in Christ, but there are some connections concerning our present life as Christians. We can look at those, those, those Israelites crossing the Jordan River. And we can think of the life of a Christian. And what do we learn? Well, first we learn that we must follow the Lord and heed his word no matter what we see in front of us. They arrived where they were supposed to arrive, at the, at the, the banks of Jordan, Jordan's stormy banks. And they did cast the wishful eye, but there was no getting across, humanly speaking. Their eyes told them, it isn't going to work. The Lord has brought you to a stop sign. But they had to trust the Lord and follow him no matter what they saw. The reality of his word had to loom larger than what they took in with their senses. Their final authority was not what they would see and what they would hear or read on the internet or see on the nightly news. The reality was what Yahweh had said. And that's the way it is with the life of faith. We, 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 We follow the Word. We follow the Lord wherever He leads, even when it takes a very circuitous route, a a peculiar route, a very very mysterious route, an illogical route, seemingly. We follow His voice. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus put it this way, we take up our cross and we follow Him. And we must obey. He's leading us into a fight. They will get to the other side and there'll be a a walled city called Jericho and they're going to have to fight through prayer. Fight through faith. Fight through obedience. Fight through fidelity to his truth, fight by submission. When they get to the other side, they're going to have to march when he says go. They are going to have to stop when he says 
halt. They will get there, and he is Lord all the time. And such is the nature of the Christian life. One of following and fighting and obeying and worshiping and praying and serving, but all the while doing that in the posture of slaves, bond servants of the king. We must at all times, as new covenant believers, fix our eyes on Jesus like their eyes were focused on that ark. We must seek and love the things above, not the things of earth. We must remember that he redeemed us in the river. He paid for us. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We belong to him. We exist for only one reason, to bring him glory. And he has saved us at the Red Sea, at the Jordan River, and at the cross of our Lord so that he might put us on display before the world and all cosmic powers and show off his handiwork in us. We exist for him. So let's cross the river. Let's follow him. Let our prayer be, lead on, O King Eternal. The day of march has come. Henceforth in fields of conquest, thy tents shall be our home. Through days of preparation, thy grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease. And holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, thy heavenly kingdom come. Let's cross the river and serve the king. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you that the floodwaters have been arrested for us. That there is no condemnation for all of us this morning who are in your Son. That you loved us in eternity. You loved us at the cross. You loved us when you sent someone to carry us the gospel. And you sent your Spirit to enable our repentance and to stir faith in us, and to hear our cry for mercy. We thank you that we stand on dry ground and will forever. And one day, Father, we'll enter a new home, a new land, a new country. Not one built with human hands, but one prepared from before the foundation of the world for all those whom you've loved in your Son and saved through his blood and his resurrection. We thank you. Father, would you lead us now by your word that we would not follow the whims of, of culture or the desires of our own heart or our own hunches, 
but that we would be a people who love your word, whose eyes are ever fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who walk when you say march and who stop when you say halt, who worship you in spirit and in truth, who manifest the fruit of your spirit, who love the Savior and the brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, Father, would you make us and keep making us into your peculiar people, your holy possession, a people for your pleasure, whom you can put on display before all of the world and every heavenly power, that your grace and transforming mercies will be seen in us to the glory of your name. Would you bless us now to come to the table? Help us see Jesus. Help us follow Jesus. Help us to be nourished on his body and blood. Help us to be unified in his truth. And then, Father, when we leave in just a moment, may we be clothed with your armor and your love. And all this through Christ we ask. Amen.